because this uh, might be the, the inner chronicle of what we are and we have to articulate ourselves, otherwise we would be cows in the field. Welcome to Cows in the Field. This is yet another movie podcast. I'm your host, Laura. And I'm Justin. And today we are going to talk about two spooky movies from 1996, continuing our 1996 series. We're talking about Scream and The Craft. Uh, hello? Why don't you want to talk to me? Who is this? Tell me your name, I'll tell you mine. Uh, I don't think so. What's that noise? Popcorn. You making popcorn? Uh-huh. I only eat popcorn at the movies. Well, I'm getting ready to watch a video. Really? What? Oh, just some scary movie. Hey, scary vigilant. Oh, I thought it was Satan. Oh, my God, Jesus Looking? Oh, okay. Oh, she's looking. Okay. I'll find a warm place. Safe warm place. Be our fourth. <laughs> I love a woman in uniform. <laughs> Two spooky classics, one of which we had never seen. Yeah. <laughs> we were, we thought, We've oh. seen Scream many times. The craft was new to both we of us. We thought, you know what? They both star Nev Campbell and Skeet Ulrich. Yep. Two uh, classic 90s actors who sort of kind of just didn't do much after that, really. Yeah, I don't um, know that they're classic 90s actors, if that's all. I mean, oh, Nev had her 90210 run. I but... don't really. I mean, sure, they were on TV, but like. You <laughs> I, don't, know, I don't know anything about Skeet Ulrich. Yeah, Skeet, I think, really kind of burned out. But, um, you know, these two movies starring two people uh, in kind of, you know, both high school. Uh, horror movies in the same year it's unusual and uh so we thought hey why not throw these two together see what comes of it and um uh what you know we had no idea going into it whether there would be any connections between these movies whether <laughs> besides be, the stars <laughs> yeah exactly whether be, yeah there, there'd be anything interesting to say and besides like oh these movies are both kind of horror movies in a certain respect um and we came away thinking there might be some stuff to talk about. So I think we're going to get into it. Um, you know, and, and the other thing to keep in mind that this this and, and all of our movies is we'll give you a heads up if we're going to spoil stuff and, and when we do. And so if you haven't seen them, we'll tell you when to pause. But otherwise, uh, mostly should be a spoiler for your discussion until we get to certain parts where where that will where we'll mention uh, give a heads up. OK, Um so, okay, so what's going on in 1996 when these movies come out, Laura? What's going on generally? <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay, how about this? What's going on in your life in 1996? Thank you. That's what you wanted to ask for? Okay, uh, 1996, I was, I think what we've established is the 96, I was in the third grade, I think. Okay. I think that's like, yeah. that's what we're going to, that's the time period so you that saw we're going to hold theaters. through the whole time. You saw these in theaters? Hell no. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I don't think I saw Scream until like college, legitimately. Yeah, I think I may I might a, have forced you to watch it. And I loved it. Yeah. Forcing is the wrong word. I thought it was like I got confused. I thought it was like scary movie. 
Like I thought it was like a parody movie. Weird thing I read in doing research for this that it the original title was Scary Movie. Right. That yes. was the working title. I heard that. Weird. I heard that. Yeah. I thought it was like a parody movie. I thought it was like a comedy and I wasn't into it. I wasn't into the idea of that in high school. So I didn't watch it until college. And then so I you realized were just getting I messed confused up big with time. Literally the movie Scary Movie, which is a parody of Scream. Among other things. Yeah, I didn't understand all That's that. That's super interesting. I feel like some postmodern <laughs> thinkers would like have a field day with it. <laughs> yes. Um, okay. Yeah, I was like confused about the picture of the picture of the picture. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, the signified had nothing, had no reality for you. Oh my God, um, you just gave me grad school flashbacks. That was the worst. Okay, so what's going on when these movies come out, right? Like one take on the whole situation is 90s horror like reaches a kind of nadir. And that it's a lot of sequels and it's like slasher uh, done way too much. And people are the, the, the genre has become tired and it's um, and so you might tell a story under which uh, Scream, at least not less so the craft uh, sort of reinvigorates the genre um, mm-hmm. in the sense that it gives it a shot in the arm. And the way it does so in sort of classic Gen X style is it does it in a meta, it does it with meta commentary. It yeah. ter- it takes an ironic distance from the so- subject matter. And it, it, it by doing so, it enables the audience who, at this time, the theater, you know, the the, the sort of target audience are Gen Xers. And that, that, you know, they've sort of grown up with all the usual tropes and they've seen them all play out. And they're sort of bored by it. And now they here's a movie that is winking knowingly every five seconds at you. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it again and again sort of tells you what you know and then also subverts those expectations. There's twists and turns. And um, and so I think that is to a certain degree uh, the explanation for what the success of this movie, why this movie was successful, I think. Um, and interestingly, I think you know, in a way it sets the ground for other kind of meta, you know, I mean, yeah, meta horror films, which come a little bit after like Blair Witch Project, which we right. talked about, um, uh, just in that, you know, we're looking for the, the horror genre is in a way looking to step outside of the kind of classical scares and find new ways of scaring its audience. And so I think this period of, um, this kind of bored period with the genre then gives way to, I think a kind of renaissance uh, with the genre. You get the meta stuff, you get the found footage movies and so on. And, um, and yeah, this movie scream went on to gross $173 million at the box office. Uh, It had immense staying power. And I think a lot of that was because of word of mouth. And I think that shows the kind of cultural significance of the movie, not to mention that it spawned, have five, four or five sequels plus four, but they're making a fifth now. Fair enough. And <laughs> not, and all of the scary movie parodies, right. which were, which are all rooted Which apparently in... came after the movie scream guys. Yeah. <laughs> That's a spoiler alert. Um, uh, but yeah, th- and those were, um, you know, I think there were like four of those, but, and, and of course they were parodying different movies, but they all were rooted in the scream universe. Right. Uh, right. Cause it's Ghostface. Ghostface keeps coming back. And yeah. so I just think, you know, culturally this is a moment and it's interesting to think about exactly, uh, why that hits and so on, what it is about this, the themes of this movie that are resonating with audiences. Um, the craft on the other hand, less successful comparatively, but still pretty successful, grossed 55 million. And, um, uh, for a movie that is 
much more pedestrian and much more- <laughs> I thought more, you were going to say bad. Well, no, we're not going to get into <laughs> criticism or whatever, but, you know, much more like uh, by the numbers, mm-hmm. uh, yes. fitting in, It's it doesn't age as well. It's fitting in the a certain sort of style of the 90s. Um, uh, it, and it's just less, in many respects, um, it doesn't have the edge that Scream somehow manages to hold on to mm-hmm. um, through the years. Uh, Agreed. And so it's less, maybe what I'm trying to say is it's it's maybe less rewatchable, maybe. Um, but nonetheless, uh, at the time, still quite successful. $55 million for for uh, like a teen horror movie is pretty good. Yeah. I mean, I think what we're finding with these 96 movies, because I was so young, is we're going to watch some movies that I came, that some movies I saw in third grade, some movies I saw later and like, wasn't in the right cultural moment, but, you know, have have seen. And then we're going to see that some that I've never seen before and right. the craft being one of them. But in reading about the craft, what I found out is that people love the craft still mm-hmm. 20 years later. It's mm-hmm. still considered a cult classic. And it has a lot of meaning, particularly to girls that were teenagers in 1996. I think if you watch this movie mm-hmm. as a teenage girl mm-hmm. in 96, this movie would have gotten its tentacles into you. Um and had a lot of staying power and rewatchability if you were just that right demographic, I think. I can see why that has that kind of – that continues to have that power. Right. It didn't hit me in that – quite in that way watching it at 32. But I was transported a little bit back to my teenage years watching this movie, which mm-hmm. I think you did not feel because you were not – you were never a teenage girl. Yeah. I think that's a big part of it. Um <laughs> Uh, but well, before we get into that, though, and and sort of our sort of differing personal reactions and also like what the significance of the craft is in particular, I think it might be useful to set the scene as far as one theme that ties both movies together, which is, I think, resonant in the culture right now, which is this idea of this fear, parental fear that your kids are going to get involved in a bad group of people. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that end up making choices that permanently hurt their future life uh, options. Um, Now, in particular, um, I have in mind here this sort of satanic panic uh, and and sort of panic around Dungeons and Dragons and and certain things in nerd culture that looks, I think, quaint from the perspective of today. But it was, I think, at the time, I mean, in the 80s and then in the early 90s, quite serious and, and... it was all over the news. And I remember my, I was into Dungeons and Dragons around this time and my parents expressed a lot of concern about what exactly, like they were like, well, I, you know, this, we heard there was a guy who like killed someone cause he was involved in Dungeons and Dragons. That and, is so wild. Yeah. And, and they were, and they were also really worried that I was going to meet weirdos and losers playing Dungeons and Dragons that were somehow, and then somehow was going to like become obsessed with it and never sort of amount to anything. I think they were worried that like, A, I might be like dress up in armor and try to kill someone. Or B, that I <laughs> would- be like a comic store. Yeah, exactly. Got, like, B, I was going to be the guy from The Simpsons, right? right. That I was going to turn into that guy. Yeah, that's so funny because now I feel like Everybody I know who played Dungeons and Dragons as a kid, as a teenager, is yeah, they're all now like lawyers like, and doctors. Yes, and stuff. Like, yes, yeah. very successful. 
spirit, like the sweet nerds who are not aggressive or violent and whatsoever and are very hard workers. I mean, That's a, my association. Yeah, but of course, there's a bit of selection bias because of the people you went to college with. But sure. <laughs> I think that the point remains that you can be interested in Dungeons and Dragons and still like be successful later on in life, just yes. like you could be interested and in. Nor will it make you a homicidal maniac. Yeah, you could be interested in video games, even violent video games mm-hmm. like Mortal Kombat or you could like Marilyn Manson. And not shoot up a school and that kind of thing. Like, I think like this is what this is reflecting is a kind of cultural panic from the boomers looking at the Gen Xers and the what we're to become the millennial generation kind of coming up and like looking at them like with sort of fear and morbid, morbid curiosity at their interests and their kind of nihilistic attitude and that sort of thing. And, and just you know, both judging it, uh, thinking, well, you don't you don't stand for anything that's bad, and also worrying about them in the case of their own kids, mm-hmm. like that, well, you you don't really you don't really seem to be interested in becoming a doctor. You just seem to be interested in your Dungeons and Dragons game. This is bad. Um, and so the reason I think this actually is a theme that's in both movies is that um both movies have, a character or several that fall in with a crowd that turns that sort of makes things bad for them that that ends up making things go poorly for them Yeah, it leads to death in both cases yes and i won't say more about this because it will spoil things but i just you know i do yeah. think that that we'll get to the spoiler stuff later but i do think that that is a, a, a common theme here between the two movies and I think it's it's of course telling that both movies are set in high school. High school is this moment of time where your choices begin to matter. Like in middle school, it was sort of like, okay, you know, you still have time to get your life together. And then, but high school, it was like, okay, now you got to start getting serious about your work and doing internships and getting a, you know, getting your college application, you know, everything checked off for your college application. And I think that was when I most acutely felt my parents' judgment slash uh, concern. Uh, concern about my interest in things like Dungeons and Dragons, like being on, I used to go on, it's going to date me a little bit, but this I used to go on what was called IRC, which is Internet Relay Chat. And I used to go on IRC and talk about, you know, just just hang out with people. It's like an early version. It was like before a instant messenger. You're so old. And we, we I used to play role-playing games on IRC because we could just play text-based role-playing games and someone wrote us. And were they freaked out that you were like talking to people on the internet? Yeah, they were like, you don't know who these people are and you're spending (laughs) all your time doing this and you should be, you know, studying. And and they, they, this was before cable internet. So I literally had to plug in my computer into the wall and use a phone line to dial up the internet. And so my dad just was able to take away the internet by literally taking the phone cable away. He just took it away and hid it. And then I just like lost out on like, I think two months of like gaming because I just couldn't go online. You were in high school at this point? Uh, it would, I think it might've been eighth grade or, or okay. maybe eighth into ninth grade. I can't remember, but it's around that time. And um, yeah, because I, and I was gaming online partly because, uh, you know, I didn't have a car. So getting to friends' houses to, play Dungeons Dragons was very difficult. It'd have to be like an arranged weeks in advance. And so um, it was my outlet uh, for for hanging out with people. And anyway, I, I think looking back, it's obviously so quaint. What a quaint worry to be like, oh man, my kid spends 
spends too much time online playing games. Like, yeah, what but is, every was, kid is going to be spending all their time online right now. Maybe <laughs> yeah. not playing games, but still, like, they're not going to be serial killers because of it. Yeah, you know? but that really was definitely, like, the cultural moment. I mean, like, a few years later after this movie comes out with Columbine, um, you know, which was just down the way from you when you were growing up in Colorado, they, you know, there was all the speculation afterwards about, like, what led these kids to do something so terrible? Was yeah. it, like, the video games? Was it because they listened to Marilyn Manson? Like, what was it because they watched the movie Heathers? Like, what was the thing? Or not even Heathers. It was more like natural born killers. They love natural born killers. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Trying to find, like, a media cultural sort of seed for what what stoked this homicidal flame in them. Um, and there was just like a lot of anxiety about like, what are your teenagers looking at paying attention to spending their time with? Yeah. Um, it's going to make them dangerous. Yeah. And so this brings us to the craft where, yes. which is a movie that, in, you know, basically the plot of the movie is Robin Tani's character. What's her name? Sarah. Sarah moves towns in the middle of high school. She goes to the, starts going to this new high school and kind of falls in with this crowd of outsider girls. She um, makes a coven. And they they make a coven and become witches. Yep. Um, yeah, which is kind of in speaking of satanic panic and and um, this like cultural moment, I think it's like kind of amazing. I actually didn't think about it at the time, but then I read this Marie Claire article that pointed out that there this was the first sort of movie that celebrated outsider girls. There had been movies like The Goonies. There had been plenty of movies that celebrated outside boys, but not outsider girls. And if you saw like a weird a girl weirdo in a movie, um, like in Breakfast Club or uh, maybe even tie and clueless, they get a makeover in the end. They, they dress in pink in the end and they like dress like Cher or they dress like the Molly Wingroll character and then they get the boy, but only after they've changed from being like a little bit of a weirdo. Um, and this is like the first time that like girls, outsider girls who don't dress like the popular girls and act like the popular girls are the heroes of the story. Um, but it seems like amazing to me, circling back to Satanic Panic, because just a two years prior, there was the West Memphis case, the West Memphis three, in which Damien Eccles was um, was somebody who did practice Wicca, Wiccan, and he, um, you know, dressed in black and had long hair. And that was enough in this small town in Arkansas for him to be sort of a target. And he ended up being accused of a crime he didn't commit and was actually sentenced to death. Um, and ended up walking free in 2011. And now he lives in Salem, Massachusetts and practices, you know, like peacefully. Mm. Um, But, you know, really in the small town, it really was like something horrible happened. And the first thing that the town thought, the first thing that the police thought was like, it's just got to be Damien because he's weird, because he's different, because he has long hair and and wears black. (laughs) I'm oversimplifying things a little bit, but like not by much. Um, so for a movie two years later to show witchcraft, in the end, I mean, one character kind of gets hers, but I don't think it's like a bad representation of witchcraft. Right, because w- there's the lady in the store who kind of, re- and also um, T- Robin, T- what is her name, Sarah's mom, both of whom represent a kind of positive witch force. Right, right. It's it, like They the, talk the, a lot the about duality. the duality. Yeah, there's a duality. Right. Absolutely. Um, and, it, and it, you know, when this movie is its strongest, it's just celebrating female power and connection. Right. Right. They kind of bond over their outsider status. And, right. Um, I mean, 
I will say though that that it, you know it would have been on that point it would have been nice to have the, in the end that somehow the girls are bonded yeah even though whereas in the end of this movie they are splintered and fractured fractured um they 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 can't heal the wounds of of their power that that their power brings you know the the, the sort of wounds that the power uh, rests upon them and so it, that is unfortunate, I think. Yeah, I, I, I got was actually quite into the first half or the first two thirds of this movie, and then I feel like the movie um, became something else. Um, if it started off as a feminist story about you know women who were helping one another through some real traumas in their life, some real struggles, mm-hmm. um, finding their strength finding a space for themselves apart from, you know, the, 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 the clicky world of high school and, you know, where men hold their sexual reputation in their hands and all that. Um, and you know, it's like sleepovers and popcorn and like holding hands in, in the fields and chanting, like that was great. But then I feel like at the end of the movie, when they all start to turn on each other and that it ends there, um, where they're all fractured, as you said, it, it feels like the movie's moral is that like women cannot actually be friends Mm -hmm. (laughs) or that women are always sort of like women be crazy and they are, you know, are going to get jealous one of another. They're these intense relationships are going to turn sour. It almost feels like an inevitability that they could not like have stayed together and stayed strong. That's the way that this movie plays. I wasn't, I I didn't, I didn't want to totally, yeah, I didn't want to totally accuse that, accuse it of that. But I, I, I do think that the fact that they end fractured it's not taking the opportunity to say, okay, and women can heal these divisions, even if they have differences and blah, blah, blah. But it, but just by portraying them in the end as fractured, it doesn't necessarily send some message that women can't be friends. I feel like that's too strong. But, but, (laughs) but because I just see in this case, it's like, well, there are some people who I think, you know, in the end, what you get is there's some people who are uh, consumed by the power you know, in a way, it's a kind of revenge fantasy. It's like for those people, the downtrodden, for the people who've been uh, subjugated in the social order, um, witchcraft can represent a kind of taking back that power. But then, of course, it's, a, you know, it's whenever someone gains power, newfound power, it can be this thing that's intoxicating and overwhelms them. And then they become consumed by it and become the very thing that they hated. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is depicted in this movie, I think, um, in, in a couple of different ways. Um, and, uh, uh, both in the, uh, the character of Nancy, but then also in, um, uh, I don't know anyone's name, uh, but, but basically <laughs> Nev Campbell's character, uh, who is this, uh, you know, she sort of is upset about, um, being judged for her appearance. And then she becomes, once she like loses her scars, she becomes such a, uh, shallow surface she's obsessed with like surface level beauty um and so there's this like flipping thing that happens um and it, you know so that becomes the central conflict is is like how do we deal how do we manage these newfound powers one of the things too that had a lot of promise in the very beginning of the movie but then turns into what you're just what you're describing is in the very beginning of the movie um they all come together at one point and they have like a like a blood ritual and they put some put each of their blood in a cup and then they you know go around in circles and ask 
ask um, Mano, the god, um, what what they want. And um, I, it that seems really poignant to mm-hmm. me because they there's they the things that they talk about that they're struggling with are really deep problems, and what they're asking for is like to actually rise above those problems and have compassion for themselves and others for the most part. Mm-hmm. Like Sarah, Sarah's had some, ex, um, some struggles with self-harm in the past. And she asks that she wants to love herself more and have others love her. Mm. That gets twisted into a love spell on Skeetle Rich, which ends up, you know, but, but like the original thing that she asked for was to like love herself, which is something, you know, that everybody I think struggles with at certain times of their life. Mm-hmm. Um, Rochelle is the only black girl in the school, I think, as far as we can see. And she's de- dealing with some really awful racism. I don't know if she says like love the people that hate her. Something, something like something that. Something like, like that. Yeah. Something like that. Like she wants to have compassion um, and distance from those from those people. And that turns into a whole thing with this girl losing her hair. Mm-hmm. Like it turns into a re- revenge plot on the blonde girl rather than like, you know, Rochelle trying to love the people that hate her. And um, and then Nev Campbell, I think she, you know, she has these scars, but for the most part, they're not all that visible because they're on her back. But I so I think what she's really suffering from is like a body dysmorphia. She Mm -hmm. thinks she's hideous. Mm -hmm. And that's like deeply that's deeply traumatic, I think, to to think that, like, you know, you have to cover up every inch of yourself and nobody wants to look at you. Um, But then, of course, what it turns into is that, like. She wears the skimpy top when she gets her scars off and she's just flirting with every boy that walks past. So it's sort of frustrating because there's like so much good stuff. There's so much good meat in this movie that spoke to me and the kind of struggles that I went through when I was a teenager. Um, And and they were being so open and vulnerable with one another. And you felt like this movie is going to really like be about um, deep female female friendships. And uh, it turns into just being about like pettiness and um you know wielding your powers just to make somebody's hair fall out yeah yeah to try to it's almost like the the most obvious way in which uh someone who just got a new found power would use it to like harm those who yeah. they perceive I mean, it's probably realistic though i think like robert ebert hated this movie they gave it two thumbs down by the way physical and ebert in case you're wondering they didn't give it four thumbs down but they didn't hate it that much <laughs> yeah. um but i think ebert said something about like uh not understanding why if people had incredible powers they would use it in the most man- mundane ways oh but yeah. i think if you were a teenager you well, would use it in the most mundane way no that 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 is not <laughs> supr- in a way that's not surprising but yeah but what what i think what we're what we're both getting at is that you know it's almost like the movie just accepts that they're just it's like oh yeah yeah and that's like that was like totally a good thing like it was a good right. that was a good move i mean it, i mean <laughs> all, right i mean almost i mean it's because it almost feels like the movie says like um, well, you shouldn't kill someone, but like, you know, the making the hair fall out stuff and all that, it's like, yeah, it wasn't very nice, but like, what are you going to do? Like, you know, instead of engage, like, I think the, the, what we're trying to get at is that what we were looking for was set aside all the powers. Like the powers are fun. And, and that's, it's of course, you know, who hasn't in a moment of, um, you know, frustration or, or, or anger wished harm upon their enemies. That's fine. But then, but it can't just be that. And it also can't just be that like, oh, and 
that's that's okay or that's not okay like that's that's boring right in a way what we want to see is that set aside the powers like the journey is in the friends you make along the way or set aside (laughs) the powers and like in the end like we find solace in each other um as opposed to in you know um harming the the evildoers or something like that right and I, I i take it that what you're getting at is like that's kind of what's underneath the this whole culture of witchcraft is that it really is a culture of coming together as to create a support network that's hidden um and provides for women in that group uh a way you know to help each other uh get through stuff that traditional sort of medicine and male dominated practices and stuff are just not sensitive to. And so like that I was kind of hoping for, I was thinking that would be great. Like we get the sort of modern equivalent of that, which I don't quite know exactly what it would be, but something like that. And instead they, they all get their powers and then they use them. And then some of them start to have misgivings and then they fight. Yeah. And they have witch fight. And then I will say, though, what this movie does get right and what resonated with me a lot is the complicated nature and and intense nature of female friendships in these teenage years. Right. Um, I was thinking a lot about that. I was thinking about um, a desperate need to fit in. I think when Sarah just gets to school, as you said, that's like a moment where like your fate is kind of decided a little bit arbitrarily. Arbitrarily, yeah. You fall in with people and... um, you know, with the character of Nancy, I kept thinking about how, you know, there have been times in my life where even when there have been red flags, um, I continue to be friends with somebody or continue to spend time with somebody in a friend group um, just because I want to be a part of that group for whatever reason, because yeah. I want to feel belonging, because I want to fit in. Because for the beginning, or you Nancy, don't have many options. Or you, you don't, don't have, have other any options. options. Yeah. yeah. And and Nancy was mean from the start. Like there really wasn't a lot. It wasn't as if she was like a, you know, a kind, warm person. And then the powers went to her head. Like yeah. she was always who she was. And then the powers just allowed her to be more vengeful. Um, but she was mean from the start. And, but I, um, but I was thinking about how desperate that need for, for inclusion is when you're a teenager. Um, and I think that, that, that got it right. I also was thinking a lot about how I have my own Nancy story. <laughs> I have my own, uh, intense friendship that went bad Wait, you're telling me that you um went to a new high school met a coven of witches <laughs> battled and um uh made cockroaches climb out of their nose um mu- there were fewer bugs okay. but <laughs> so what happened i went to a new school in the seventh grade and i met a girl uh who i'll call nancy uh, for this story. And I think the first thing Nancy said to me was that she wished she could be a vampire and she was interested in Wicca and, okay. wait, at the time. So, um, so we're basically so like, we're basically there. So far, beat for beat. So far. Um, and um, she was like such a quirky girl. Like at one point she uh, went for Halloween as um, is it Alex is the main character for from Clockwork Orange. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She had like a cane and a cod piece and like the and the eyelashes. I know someone with a cod piece <laughs> wears one wears a cod piece all the time. He's referring to our baby who wears a diaper. Anyhow, um, you know, like she was like a like a offbeat out, outsider girl who frankly scared me a little bit when I first met her because I was like weirded out that she said she wanted to be a vampire. Um, <laughs> but we were like we got super close. Like, you know, we spent a lot of time sleeping over at each other's house 
happens is I found a note the other day that she wrote me in sophomore year about how like she feels like she could tell me anything. Wow. We were really, really close. And then like something turned. Like when? Between junior and senior year. Mm. Um, There's some stuff going on. I think probably something had been brewing for a while, but it felt like it just turned on a dime to me. But we had both had a lot of pressure from our families to get into the same college. And so I think that was coming to a head our senior year. Mm. But um, and then she also kind of changed what she wanted to be in the like popular clique all of a sudden, like Hmm. she had been like vampire girl and then she wanted to be popular. And so she changed her look over the summer. But this all came to a head when we went on this, one of these retreats, like to, you know, some like campground or whatever for our senior year. Christian retreat? No. I don't know. (laughs) No, I was not a Christian retreat. I went to plenty of those too, but this was not a Christian retreat. We were sitting on a bunk bed and Nancy takes me aside and she's like, I have to tell you something. And she proceeds to tell me that all of my friends hate me. <laughs> they think I'm arrogant and horrible. And all they do is talk about me behind my back. And the reason that she's telling me this is because she's my only friend who cares about me. Okay, hold on. Let's stop there. That's yeah. a crazy thing <laughs> to hear from someone who, who you think you're friends with. Yes. Oh, my God. I was God. devastated. I think I'd be devastated now. Yeah. I but saw in high school, can you imagine? Like, your whole world is your friends. I think I'm dying. I'm crying so hard. My and, face and, is, like, this swollen. this is a retreat. Like, you're away. Yeah, there are so other now you're, people. It, yeah, I'm away. I can't go home. I can't like, get away from her. Yeah, you got to six more days with these people. Yeah, I've now. got another weekend with these girls. Uh-huh. And I think there are other people in the room at the time because it's just like a big, like, bunk bed filled cabin, right? right? right, right. So I'm on a top bunk with her just sobbing as she's telling me this. Do we do we have any sense as to why she would say this? Because it's not true. It wasn't true. Like, none of those things were true. No, it wasn't true. I have no idea. I don't want to. I don't want to know. I don't know. I have no idea. But here's the crazy thing. I'm like crying. I'm puffy. You know, I get really puffy when I cry. My whole face is swollen. And she takes a picture of me. Mm. Yeah. Because she'll have that photo. (laughs) It's like one of those like disposable cameras that makes like a when you advance the film. Yeah. I don't know what she did with that photo. But like how fucked up is that? Yeah, it's not good. Yeah. That's bad times. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But here's the worst part of this story yes. is that you were st- you stayed friends with this person yes. f- for like six a more years. Decade a decade later. <laughs> a decade. Well, I mean, I think like, that's but, how twisted but female friendships your, are. But in, in your defense, though, I mean, I, I think it, it's it's complicated because, of course, you believed her. Presumably, that's why you were crying. And you believed her not only about the parts that she said about your other friends, but about the part that she's like your only true friend because she's the Mm -hmm. one who's actually telling you. So there's this gaslighting in both dimensions. And so I think it's an exercise of control. Ultimately, I wanted you to hypothesize on that, but I'll just go ahead and say it. It's 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 in a way an attempt to control you by effectively limiting your knowledge about, right? By saying like, I'm the only person who will give you the give you the honest truth so i you have to go through me to get at the truth mm-hmm. there is a bit of that too in the movie mm-hmm. the the craft nancy you know she she was kind of like the alpha of that group before yeah. sarah came by and then sarah had more natural powers than than nancy did and you know the other two sort of glommed on to sarah and she and she sort of fit in too easily and it made it made nancy feel um, feel threatened. And I remember feeling, feeling that too in high school, you know, if you have a best friend and then 
and then they start getting close to somebody else, you you do feel that kind of like anxiety about, you know, the hierarchy of friendships in your yeah, life. Totally. I, I think there's another element of, so there's Nancy in the movies control over um, Sarah, but there's also Skeet Ulrich's character, who I don't even know his name, his control over Sarah in and the way he does, the way he implements that control by one at first, I mean, this is early before he becomes ultimately, you know, bent to her will by this, by the, by the spell. Um, but early he, uh, you know, flirts with her. And of course she's in a vulnerable position because she doesn't know anyone. And maybe she thinks he's attractive or whatever. Uh, they make out. And then he goes for, for whatever reason, again, I think it's because he just wants to sort of control the narrative over their relationship, he he decides he's not actually interested in her, and he just goes and tells, he spreads these rumors that they had sex and that like that she was bad, that she was bad or whatever. Okay, yeah, so he, I think it was partly also because he controlled the narrative, but also to like sort of reject her in like anticipation of her rejecting him because I think he wanted to do more, and she said no. She just wanted to stop at kissing, and he said, "Oh, that's okay." Oh, interesting. He was so really you think nice it was a revenge on that one? I think it might have been. Yeah, uh, I think so. I think so. I think like he felt rejected in that moment, and so he rejected her in a more public way. That's interesting. Yeah. So I think that is an element of basically wielding popularity and social cachet uh, to you know over another person by saying, "I can control the narrative uh, of you in this setting, in this social setting." So on this point of control, one theme that's running through both movies, I think, is this idea of men controlling women's sexuality. So the idea is borne out in the craft between um, Skeet Ulrich's character, uh, I guess his name is Chris, um, he makes out with Sarah when she first comes to the school, uh, and She's in this kind of vulnerable position because she's new to the school and maybe she finds him attractive or whatever. So she says, okay, you know, I'll, I'll make out with you. But um, but I guess she doesn't want to go further than that. And so uh, as a kind of act of retribution, he he uh, he he spreads this rumor that they did have sex and that she was no good at it. So in doing that, he he just uses his social power to control the narrative over her and who she is, who she's sort of her identity, her social identity within the sphere of this school. Um, in Scream, Skeet Ulrich's character is Billy. And spoiler alert now, we're, I'm going to spoil the ending of Scream. Um, Billy's character is the one who is, he's one of two of the killers uh, and uh, it, you learn at the very end of the movie that he um, kills uh, uh, Sydney's mom, Sydney being Nev Campbell. Um, he's killed her mother because they had an affair. Her, sorry, her mother had an affair with his, his father. His father, yeah. And, um, and that ended up like ruining his, his parents' marriage. You're crazy, both of you. Actually, you prefer the term psychotic. We'll never get away with this. <laughs> Huh? Tell that to Cotton Weary. You wouldn't believe how easy he was to frame. Watch a few movies, take a few notes. <laughs> it was fun. No! Oh, we going? Why? Why did you kill my mother? Why? Why? 
You hear that, Stu? I think she wants a motive. <laughs> hmm. I don't really believe in motive, Sid. I mean, did Norman Bates have a motive? No. Did they ever really decide why Hannibal Lecter liked to eat people? Don't think so. See, it's a lot scarier when there's no motive, Sid. We did your mom a favor, Sid. That woman was a slutbag whore who flashed her shit all over town like she was Sharon Stone or something. Yeah, it would put her out of her misery. Because let's face it, Sidney, your mother was no Sharon Stone. Hmm? So there's this attempt to punish her for this, what, you know, her, not his dad, but her, the mom, right, for this promiscuous behavior. And yet what I think is so interesting about this theme is that it, there's, it's a dual nature to the male control. It's one, this sort of desire to punish women, or at least, yeah, in the case of the craft, sort of, you know, feign punish, because of course she didn't really have sex, but this idea to like wield chastity against women, this ideal of chastity against them. Um, and yet at the same time, these characters like are they they desperately want to have sex with with these women because and in in scream billy is constantly hounding nev campbell's character uh sydney to have sex like throughout the entire movie and then eventually she sort of like gives in and it's like okay at the towards the end he makes her feel like she has a problem like she's like frigid or something yeah 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 i think there's judgment on either side either you're like a prude and that's bad or you're a whore and that's bad right you have to like have sex in exactly the right amount and way apparently no i think there's no winning i think it's not even (laughs) that there's no victory because you're gonna have sex and then you're gonna be chastised for being a slut yep that's what it is and it's the man can have that power and occupy that space because the social norms are different on men than they are on women. And so these characters, these, these male characters can get away with this by, you know, notice it's not his dad that's punished. His dad did the same thing, had an affair, the mom, but it's the mom that's punished. She's punished with death. And then, um, and then it's of course, um, uh, uh, Robin Tunney's character who's punished for being, having sex with him and being bad at it. Right. He's not like, He's not, he's, there's no punish, social punishment for him having sex. It's like, right. oh, that's just expected. But for her, it's like she's a slut or whatever. Right. And, um, and then when she first meets, when she's trying to decide like who to spend time with, she, when she first meets Chris and he tells her to stay away from, from the bitches of Eastwick, he says, oh, Nancy's like a real slut. Mm-hmm. Like that's another way that he's like, you can't spend time with them because like I've already labeled them as slutty. Right. That's right. Yeah, and it, it is also interesting in Scream how it's only after they have sex that then finally he's like, great, now I can tell you, I can just reveal everything to you and I'm going to kill you. Like he waits till they've <laughs> had he's sex. he's followed the horror movie rules, Justin. Well, okay, well, we'll get to the horror movie rules, but I think I think it's, it's, but I think it's also that like, again, playing off of this idea of like, you're this sort of virginal thing to be desired and then once you've had sex, you're a slut. Now who's then deserving of death, to, yeah, right? You, you, you now yep. need to die. That's the, how it plays out. In his mind, now they've had sex, time for you to die, and we, and we move on. Um, and I think that that is, that is a theme that does sort of kind of connect the two movies. And I think in both movies, the, the, the female characters overcome that ultimately. I mean, in, in The Craft, uh, um, Sarah is, you know, she's, she, I mean, she gets her revenge on him like halfway through the movie and and he spends half of the movie in a state of like 
you know, bewilderment that he's like, I'm just so into you all, you know, and it's kind of funny that he's constantly just following around like a little puppy dog and it's almost, a, it's, you know, it's, it's pathetic really. But, and then, you know, um, uh, she then she didn't really think that that's what she wanted. Um, and, uh, but she has, she the, the tables are turned. And then, and the same thing happens in scream where the tables are turned and, and, you know, Sydney eventually gets the best of, of Billy. She ultimately, I think, kills him in the end, right? I think she's the one who shoots him. He jumps back up and then she shoots yeah, him. Yeah, I think so. so. So she takes back that power. And, of course, it's done violently, but that's fine. These are, action, these are horror movies. So she takes back that power and um, and wields it against him. Um, and so, um, so in that regard, there's a kind of closure on this point. I, don't, I think that both movies are not totally interrogating these ideas, but they are there. And I think the movies recognize that um, enough not to um, glorify that mm. behavior. It's part of the movie. It's baked in for sure. And it's a plot point. They use it to further what's going on. But it. I don't think the movie says, yeah, and that's that's a good thing. Because no. I think in both cases, the, the, the tables end up being turned. Absolutely. I mean, it's the thing that pushes Sarah into the coven, essentially. Um, that's true. Cause yeah. she's not, um, she's not necessarily like sure. She wants to be friends with these girls and she goes on a date with Chris. And, and then when the Chris thing doesn't work out, when he ends up burning her, um, it kind of pushes her into the arms of not just like those other girls, but witchcraft is sort mm-hmm. of a way, you know, a space in which, um, women have power outside the patriarchy. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but you were going to mention the horror movie rules, which plays a really important part in screen. Jesus Christ, you don't know the rules? Uh, have an aneurysm, why don't you? There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a horror movie. For instance, number one, you can never have sex. <laughs> Big no-no! Big no-no! I'm a dead man. Sex equals yes. death. Okay, number two, you can never drink or do drugs. No, the sin factor. It's a sin, it's an extension of number one. And number three, never, ever, ever under any circumstances say, I'll be right back. Because you won't be back. I'm getting another beer, you want one? Yeah, sure. I'll be right back. But that exactly, so just to tie this together again, that, that, trend embodies this masculine this weird masculine double-sided uh relationship to sex because again the the male audience goers and male creators of these movies want to see the sex on the on the screen but they don't but once the sex happens they kill those characters so they they want to see the sex and then they want those characters in virtue of them having sex they want them to die yeah. So it, it plays out this exact theme and Scream doesn't, you know, it's there again, but it's not like on the surface. It just, it points out that this happens, but it's not like, yeah, isn't that interesting that like when you, when you do this sort of behavior, which is like fun and like, we all like it. No, you die. Yeah. Like, it, that's like a weird, like, um, you know, uh, puritanical view of the world almost. Um, but, uh, yeah. They make tons of jokes about it and references to it in the movie. I mean, Jamie Kennedy, I think one says he's like one says he's never thought he'd be so happy to be a virgin because you think he dies yeah. and that he like pops back up yeah. again. But what I mean is they're not caught. They're not criti- they're not critically engaging with it. They're not saying like, isn't this strange that like 
the movies that we love embody a kind of puritanical ethics in them ah, that yes. like we okay, would sorry. ultimately reject if down. we if we if we were told like hey should people who have sex <laughs> before marriage die we'd be like no should people well, who some people might think so no but. what i mean the people who watch the movie don't wouldn't accept no, that right of course the people not. who watch these movies aren't like like yes i i sign on to this so it's so interesting that that is built into the fabric of these movies so much so that Scream can be like, these are literally rules of the horror genre prior to this movie. And like, so that's that's a point where the movie's meta commentary, I think, is is really effective in that it brings that out. Of course, it's not fully engaging with it. That's my point. But it's still it's drawing attention to it. So then people like us can sit here and like mull over like to the extent that there is anything here. This is a very strange, you know, Judeo-Christian conservative ethical viewpoint that's built into all these horror movies that you that, you know, you would think the the very people who would accept that ethic would hate these horror movies because mm-hmm. they're so gratuitous. But like, in fact, there's they're like they're I don't know, they're confirmations of their worldview. They're just like, yeah, 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 these are people doing bad things by your lights and they're getting what they deserve. <laughs> Um, so anyway, I think I find that interesting. And um, I think that it's, it, you know, it's just, it's a really twisted mindset. And I think it, it is representative of this patriarchal uh, ethics, uh, which is designed specifically to subjugate women, and in particular women's sexuality, this very thing that they, the, the male gaze is obsessed with. Um, we mentioned that uh, that that Sydney's mom is dead, and that plays a kind of important subplot throughout the movie. It, but similarly, I think you get the same sort of thing in um, the craft, in that you have uh, Sarah, who she's. I think they're, uh, you know, her mom died at giving birth to her, right? Mm-hmm. So, so she never really knew her mom, and there's this m- moment in both movies where bo- these were both Sydney in Scream and Sarah in the craft learn who their mom really was. So there's this moment when Sydney learns that her mom was not the, um, you know, the sort of baked cookies, like homemaker, perfect housewife, whatever ideals she had in her mind. Her mom was a woman who had sexual desires and was in an unhappy marriage and cheated on her husband. And, um, and similarly, um, Sarah in The Craft learns towards the end of the movie that her mom was a witch and that, you know, she, uh, um, I think, but she was a good witch, right? And and that she learns to like channel her to like defeat the evil witches and so on. But I think it's interesting that in both movies you have this and both characters have to undergo this realization of like, oh, now they come to learn who their mom was and like what was, you know, they, in, in a way learn a little bit about themselves, like learn through in their mom, like that they themselves have, certain um you know they're all we're all human beings we're all flawed and we're also human beings that have interesting dimensions to our lives that might not be immediately apparent um but like the fact that like so much of the emotional catharsis of that of both of those plots come through them coming to think about their relationship with their mother and who their mother was in that lineage the dads are there in both movies barely in both movies they don't matter at all don't matter at all they never have any conversations with their kids. That's a good point. <laughs> you know, there's one scene in which Sarah's dad's trying to comfort her 
Um, and he seems very worried because she's had this history of self-harm. Yep. So I'm sure he's terrified, you know, they've moved to a new city so that she can get a fresh start. And now she's, you know, she's had this tragedy in her life and, um, and he seems pretty worried, but she basically is just like, go away. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they don't have like they a, don't have that kind of relationship. No, yeah. they don't. And she, she really does need to find out more about her mother. Like that, that maternal lineage does really matter mm-hmm. to her identity in that movie. And, and same with, with Sydney in this, in Scream. Coming to have a kind of relationship with your, with a parent who's dead ends up being in a way the emotional, um, catharsis of both movies okay well this was good i think we should probably wrap up with uh our favorite i'm putting you on the spot here oh my god i'm gonna give you a couple choices okay Okay. so we're gonna do teen slasher and teen and sorry and witch movies okay so all right for teen slashers um i'm gonna give you a couple options scream is definitely on the options i think scream is such a good slasher it's one of the best it's really really one one of the the best. best now you got the classic halloween yep okay um, and then I'm going to throw in, um, I'm going to throw in final destination into the mix. Okay. And I'm going to throw in Texas chainsaw massacre. Oh my God. And let's throw in one more. Um, again, teen, I'm going to throw in cabin in the woods. That's another meta meta. I don't like that movie. movie. Okay. I'm sorry. So what would you say between those is, is your favorite? Uh, favorite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, favorite or or whatever, best, whatever you like. I think I'm gonna go Halloween. That movie is classic. It's got good autumnal vibes. It's got a cr- really nice, simple, creepy score. Um, it's got an unkillable killer. <laughs> um, and it's got a scene yeah. that I was now gonna be burned in my brain forever because our little our little toddler son keeps grabbing knives out of the dishwasher, yeah. and he looks like baby clown Michael Myers. God. Yeah. <laughs> We're parents of the year, guys. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that I'm not a big Halloween fan. Um, I know you're not. I'm I know gonna you're not. say I'm gonna say between for me it comes down to Scream and Texas Chainsaw, and I'm going chainsaw. Oh, like that movie the, is nuts. I like the chainsaw and my it's favorite. It's really good. Don't get me wrong, but I just can't watch it every year. My favorite the dinner scene is my favorite part. And I just think <laughs> it's one of those like moments in a movie where it, if you were to show someone a clip like that clip, just just not even clip, just like still of the movie, and you, the person would be like, "What the hell is going on in this movie?" That's what I love. I love when a movie can just like give you a still, and you're like, "I have no idea what this is out of context. It looks insane." And then you watch it, and in context, you're like, "Yeah, that, that's that's about right. That's about what I thought." Yep. Yeah, I mean, for me, the thing that's crazy about that movie is the sheer amount of bones that are in that house. Love it. Holy shit. Just rooms full of bones. Love it. Set dressing is insane in that movie. <laughs> All right. Now we're going to do our favorite witch movies. Now. Okay. These. Uh, <laughs> There's some bad ones out there. I have. You know I what I'm going to say. You're going to give you a bunch of options and you know what I'm going to say. Well, let me give you a couple options. All right. Um, okay. Because I. It's going to be a tough one for me. Yeah. You don't have to like witch movies. We all know that you're a misogynist and you yeah. hate women and you don't like women in power. That's absolutely right. Uh, three, three for three. Um, <laughs> all right, here we go. I know what's happening. <laughs> all right, Blair Witch Project. So, which movie's got witch in the title? Sure. Okay. The Craft, because we just discussed it. Mm. Um, Hoax Pocus. Um, I'm doing ones, the only ones we've seen. So okay. I'm going to skip a couple that uh, 
that other people might be like, oh, no, but what about that movie? Which we haven't seen. Sorry. The Witch. Okay. The Witches. Mm-hmm. The Witches of Eastwick. Witches of Eastwick. That movie is wild. The Wizard of Oz. Oh. It's got a witch in it. What do you think? She is like the most iconic witch of all time. Okay. What's your pick? Or do you, I'd go first if you want, because you, you went first last time. Do you want to get more time to think about it? Or you, uh, no, I'm going Hocus Pocus. Hocus I don't Pocus. care. I'm going <laughs> Hocus Pocus. You can't convince me otherwise. <laughs> I love that movie. I love when Sarah Jessica Parker just goes, boys. <laughs> My lucky rat's tail. It's the best. I love when she talks to her book. <laughs> a book with one eye that goes with a shifty eye. Okay. She strokes uh, it. Yeah, I realize I have not seen that movie in a while, which which is probably yeah, you've been I'm, avoiding about, it. I'm about to be subjected to it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am going to say... I'm going to say the Blair Witch Project. I'm going to eat. Uh, whatever. It's a good one. I, yeah, it's a good one. I, I, a I'm not movie. a big witch fan. So, yeah. I mean, what about Crucible? Did. Crucible should be on this list, right? That's a, they're not really witches, but come on. Yeah, no, that. No, um, or, yeah, Crucible. Yeah. yeah. I kind of dug Crucible, man. What is it? It's Dan- what? I, it's my name. It's my name. Yeah. All I have is my name. All I, that's it. All yeah. I have is my name. Yeah, the DDL of that of it all. I don't know if I can put it in my tops. I'm sorry. Yep, no problem. I knew, well, I knew there was nothing. Even if if Wizard of Oz can't unseat Hocus Pocus for you, then that is <laughs> that's that's <I> telling. <laughs> there's no there's no chance. No one has any chance. When we get Molly back on here to talk about Phantom Thread, we could dive into my to my feelings about Daniel Day Lewis. So for the next episode, we um we have something very special. Uh, part of the reason we wanted to do 96 was that we found out that. Both Wes Anderson and Paul Thomas Anderson's first movies came out in 1996, which I think is kind of cool, partly because, you know, these two directors um, have gone on to become, you know, some of the biggest auteurs in American cinema. Uh, So the two movies are Wes Anderson's Bottle Rocket and Paul Thomas Anderson's Heart Eight. For that episode, we'll have a very special guest, uh, Mentia Acetoso, professor of Italian literature and cinema at Boston College um, and expert in, uh, well, I don't know if you'd want to call himself an expert in Wes Anderson, but he's definitely a big fan of Wes Anderson. So that'll be a really special, special guest. And um, and then you have me who loves Paul Thomas Anderson and has never seen Heart Eight. So that'll be fun. <laughs> and then you have Laura, who's so so on Paul Thomas Anderson. Half and half. Yeah, but you like Wes. You like Bottle Rockets, so that's a, I that's love a, Bottle Rockets, and it has my high school uniform in it. That's right. They filmed it at your school, right? My brother's school. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. We could talk a little. We'll bit talk about Dallas that. in the next episode. Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks everyone for listening, and see you next time. Bye. Bye.